Hello and welcome to the podcast for the February 2010 issue of The Lancet Neurology. Richard Lane here and I'm joined this month by Alison Rowan from TLN. Welcome Alison. Hi Richard. Alison, let's start with a research article and this is looking at the potential of PET scans in the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. This sounds very interesting. Tell us a bit more about this study. Different forms of Parkinsonism often have overlapping clinical features, especially in the early stages. For example, the clinical features of early Parkinson's disease can be easily confused with the clinical features of other Parkinsonian disorders. And patients with multiple system atrophy and progressive supranuclear palsy are often misdiagnosed as having Parkinson's disease. Getting the right diagnosis is crucial to ensure that patients are given the right treatments and also to be able to advise patients about their prognosis, which can be very different for these different conditions. So there's a real need for better techniques to be able to accurately differentiate between different Parkinsonian syndromes. And neuroimaging methods could be one option to improve diagnostic accuracy and reduce time to diagnosis in patients with these disorders. In recent years, David Eidelberg and colleagues have used PET imaging to map and validate specific metabolic imaging patterns that are characteristic of Parkinson's disease, multiple system atrophy, and progressive supranuclear palsy. For this study, the research team developed a multiple pattern analysis technique to be used with PET imaging data to automatically classify the scan results of patients with different forms of Parkinsonism into disease categories based on these characteristic metabolic patterns. And Alison, tell us a bit more about the methodology. And I guess a crucial part of the study is the blinded comparison of patient symptoms with the actual results from the PET scans. Yes, that's right. So the study involved 167 patients who had Parkinsonian features, but whose diagnosis wasn't yet certain. All these patients had PET scans when they were in the early stages of the disease. And for each patient, the likelihood of having each of the three diseases was calculated. The patients were also followed up for an average of more than two years by a movement disorder specialist who, as you say, was not aware of the imaging results before a final clinical diagnosis was made. The researchers then compared the diagnoses based on the imaging procedure with the final clinical diagnoses to see how accurately this technique could discriminate the different conditions. So in terms of the sensitivity and specificity, the results from from the PET scans, how, how how do they do? The researchers found that the sensitivity of their technique was 84%, so that it was able to correctly identify 84% of patients who had Parkinson's disease. It also had a very high specificity, being able to correctly identify 97% of patients who didn't have Parkinson's disease. The accuracy of the technique was also high for discriminating patients with multiple system atrophy and progressive supranuclear palsy. Another important aspect of this study was that 22 patients had repeat scans and results from these were in strong agreement with the classifications made from their original scans and the image-based classifications were also confirmed in nine patients at post-mortem examination. So in terms of the implications or conclusions, what are the authors saying and also the authors of the linked uh, reflection and reaction piece? These are encouraging results and this imaging classification procedure is an important step forward in the development of tools to improve early diagnosis of different forms of Parkinsonism. Apart from the clinical reasons I mentioned earlier, from a research perspective, early and accurate diagnosis is essential to ensure that patients with the correct diagnosis are enrolled in clinical trials of neuroprotective and disease-modifying drugs. But the results do need to be confirmed in blinded prospective imaging studies 
with larger groups and more extensive post-mortem confirmation before this technique can be put into practice. And as Angelo Antonini reminds us in an accompanying commentary, we should bear in mind that imaging techniques are not a replacement for thorough clinical investigation, and patients should be referred to movement disorder neurologists, especially when there's uncertainty about the diagnosis. Thanks very much, Alison. Moving on to the editorial, The Leading Edge, this month, I see the topic is stroke prevention, and this is pegged to a European report that has just been published. So tell us about the report, first of all, Alison. The report draws attention to the missed opportunities to prevent stroke in patients with atrial fibrillation and calls on European Union policymakers and governments to take urgent action to avoid the thousands of preventable strokes that happen every year. And I see one of the main issues here is the association, the link between atrial fibrillation and ischemic stroke, and also the fact that atrial fibrillation itself is under-recognised, so therefore there's an issue there in terms of stroke prevention. Atrial fibrillation is actually the single most common cause of stroke and is thought to account for up to one in five ischemic strokes. Strokes related to atrial fibrillation tend to be more severe and lead to greater disability and worse outcome than strokes linked to other causes. In Europe, it's estimated that about 6 million people have atrial fibrillation, so this is an important target population for reducing the overall burden of stroke. But, as you mentioned, atrial fibrillation is commonly undetected, and many patients have a stroke before it's identified. And when it is detected, it's often inadequately treated. So, Alison, what is the call to action here? Well, as the report points out, there's a lot of potential for improvements in clinical practice. We need initiatives to raise awareness among primary care physicians on the early signs of atrial fibrillations. And in many countries, there aren't any coordinated screening strategies in primary care, so this should be a priority. In terms of treatment, several new strategies are in development, but for now, warfarin is the mainstay of stroke prevention in patients with atrial fibrillation and can prevent up to two-thirds of stroke but it's not used in about half the patients who are eligible for it, partly because people fear the increased risk of intracranial haemorrhage and partly because careful dose monitoring is needed for warfarin. When it is used according to accepted guidelines, the benefits of warfarin generally outweigh the potential risks. So initiatives to educate physicians about the use of warfarin according to these guidelines are needed. On top of all this, facilities for monitoring warfarin treatment are inadequate or not available in many countries, so effective services must be developed. And although atrial fibrillation is very common, the amount of research doesn't match this burden, and there's a need for a greater understanding of the causes, prevention and treatment of atrial fibrillation and stroke prevention in these patients. Neurologists should have a pivotal role in driving these developments in clinical practice and research. Thanks very much, Alison. And finally, can you briefly outline an epidemiological study? This concerns uh, intracerebral hemorrhage, and it's by Van Ash and colleagues. The incidence of ischemic stroke has fallen over the past 40 years, but we know less about the epidemiology of intracerebral haemorrhage. Charlotte Van Ash and her colleagues have provided a comprehensive review of the literature and a meta-analysis of the incidence, case fatality and functional outcome after intracerebral haemorrhage. They looked at these variables in relation to age, sex, ethnic origin and time period of the studies. The authors included population-based studies from 1980 to 2008, They found 36 eligible studies that included over 8,000 patients with intracerebral haemorrhage. Incidents remained stable over this time period, which contrasts with the decreases seen for incidents of ischemic stroke in recent decades in developed countries. The overall incidence of intracerebral haemorrhage was 24 cases per 100,000 person years, and that figure increased dramatically with age. 
The researchers reported a higher incidence in men than in women, and this was especially apparent in Japanese studies, and incidence in people from Asian countries was double that in other ethnic groups. In terms of case fatality, this was 40% at one month and didn't decrease over the time period studied. Curiously, the case fatality in Japan was much lower than in other countries at about 17%. Only six studies provided data on functional outcome, and in these the level of independence varied from 12 to 39%. So clearly more research is needed to better document the functional outcome in these patients. As Jeff Donnan and colleagues outline in their accompanying commentary article, it's useful to consolidate these epidemiology data to inform future research into intracerebral haemorrhage. One area that deserves particular attention, the commentary authors say, is the developing world. Data on stroke incidents and case fatality from developing countries are scarce, yet this is where the majority of strokes occur. Thanks very much, Alison. Clearly a very important reference point, I think, uh, for, for research, as you say, in that area. Any other highlights from the February issue, Alison? Among the other highlights, we have the second of a two-part review on the diagnosis and management of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. We have a review on gamma secretases in Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative disorders, looking at the cell biology and opportunities for therapeutic interventions. And finally, we have reviews on paediatric migraine and on transient global amnesia. Terrific. What a varied and packed issue. Alison Rowan, many thanks indeed for joining me, and thank you all for listening. Those are some of the highlights from the February 2010 issue of The Lancet Neurology. See you next time.